0: In 1993, a few years ago, I was a sophomore in high school and was playing baseball for Pleasure Ridge Park High School in the state championship. And it was in June of 1993, and I remember it like it was yesterday. I was playing shortstop, and we were playing Harrison County High School. And we we were somewhat surprised to get there. We knew we had a good team, but Harrison County was really, really good. And in that state championship game, we honestly just fell apart. We made several errors, and it was, it was really, really not a good game. I think we only had three hits in the game, and we, we got beat six to nothing. And so we got all the way there, and we lost in the state championship, and it was devastating. I don't know if you've ever had anything like that. You just you wanted so bad, and you'd worked so hard to try to achieve, and it just didn't work out. And, and lo and behold, the next year, in 1994, my junior year, we got back to the state championship game. And we were playing again, and we were playing Corbin High School, and we were the favorites this time. We knew we had the better team, and yet they were pretty good themselves. And and we got in the first inning, and and we started all over again like we did in the last year. We couldn't catch anything. We couldn't throw a strike. We we couldn't make a throw to a base. It was terrible. We got down six to nothing in the first inning. And I looked over. I was playing third base that year. And I looked over at our shortstop. His name was Andre. And I just looked at him. I said, "Not again." This can't happen. Not again. Andre was a a man of few words. He's playing shortstop and he just looks at me and he just smiles. I thought, what in the world are you smiling about? We're down six to nothing. But you know, he believed something that maybe in that moment I didn't believe. Because he believed that we still had a chance, that there was still hope. But the game wasn't over yet, it was only the first inning. And interestingly enough, we came back in that first inning and tied the game at six. Six to six after the first inning. And what's supposed to be the two best teams in the state, we're just sloppy. We go on later on in the game, and we're ahead, and I had made an out. And I was a very emotional player, just so you know. I, I, I was very emotional. Some of you got to experience that recently. I'm a very emotional coach as well. And, I, and I, 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 my, my emotion when I didn't do well was anger. It wasn't feeling sorry for myself or pouting. I just got mad, and and mad at myself. And so I had made an out, and I was really angry with myself, and and probably wanting to smash something or break something or whatever, throw things. You know, that's just what you do when you're immature and mad. And so I remember our second baseman. His name was Eric, and he came over to me. And so I had experienced Andre's smile in the first inning, down six to nothing, and then after an out. Eric comes over to me and he puts his arm around me and he looks at me and he says, repeat after me. And I just wanted to smack him right then. Get out of here. But he says, repeat after me. And he was a senior, so I sort of had to listen to him. He, we are winning the state championship game. And I didn't want to say anything. I was mad because I made it out. He says, repeat after me. So okay. We are winning the state championship game. And it was amazing just in saying those words of realizing this is the situation. Number one, hope was not lost in the first inning. Number two, later in the game I realized we're winning this thing that I began to get a little bit more excited. There was something about those two incidents that really helped to buoy me in the middle of what could have been very hopeless. We went on to win that state championship game, got to celebrate. And and as a blessing from the Lord, the following year we won it again. But I tell you what, I go back to those two situations, looking over at Andre and seeing his smile. see it right now. And then picture myself in the dugout with Eric with his arm around me saying, you know what, we're, we're winning. I, I really believe that what we see today from the Scripture is very similar to those kind of incidents, those situations we're going to look and we're going to see a smile this morning. We're going to get words of reassurance this morning that will give us hope. Hope is something that is extremely important to all of us, whether we realize it or not. We have folks this morning who came, and you are full of hope. Life has given you so much to be hopeful for. But what's equally true is we probably have even more people this morning who are hopeless. For whatever reason. I I did a little bit of research and found a a website called Psych Central, psychology, psychcentral.com. And here's what they have to say about hope. They define it as the life force that keeps us going and gives us something to live for. Kind of makes sense. Helps to keep us going, give us something to live for. It's a crucial part, they say, of dealing with life's problems and maintaining resilience in the face of obstacles. Absolutely. Even a glimmer of hope that our situation will turn around can keep us going. You know that. We can start to feel, they say, as if there's nothing to live for. Here's what they say. If we can't get to where we want to be and don't feel in control of our life, what's the point, they say? We lose hope because of that. And this is where I begin to break with their version of hope. They, they say, here's how we lose hope. We, we may lack hope from the beginning. Some grew up in situations where there was no hope. From childhood, things were very, very difficult for you. You had no hope that they would ever be or get better. They also mentioned that we, we can lack hope because of a loss of connections. Maybe we lose something through divorce or death or loss of a job or loss of persevere identity or just change in general. You lose a loved one, your marriage doesn't work out, things happen in your life, whatever that may be, and you lose hope. They also say that when you're a victim of something, maybe you've been abused or belittled or whatever, and you just begin to think that that's the way life should be. You also can experience a lack of hope because of burnout. You're just overwhelmed, exhausted with life. And here's what they say, here's how to renew hope. This is what our secular world is going to tell you. Here's how you renew hope. They say, in much of the research of examining hope, a major factor that contributes to our level of hope is the achievement of our goals. When we are able to reach our goals and have a sense of support and validation, it instills hope. In this sense, empowering yourself by setting effective goals is the key. But you want to overcome your hopelessness this morning, you will go to a secular world and they will tell you, set better goals. Prioritize your goals. Make sure that they are achievable. Set goals that motivate you and push through any barrier that gets in your way. I want to offer you something a whole lot better than that this morning. I really, really do. It comes from the Scripture. This isn't something that I make up. This comes directly from God Himself. So if you don't believe a word I say, that's fine, but believe what God says. I'm not going to offer you ways to set better goals to overcome your hopelessness. I'm going to offer you what Psalm 23 says. So turn with me if you've got a Bible. Psalm 23, you'll see it on the screen. You'll see it on your handout. You can get to it on your paper copy. You can scan it. Lots of different ways to get to the Scripture. Please do if you can at all. Psalm 23, a familiar psalm that many of us, even if we've never been in church before, have probably heard at a funeral. We've probably heard uh, just throughout our lifetimes quoted or something. Here's what Psalm 23 says, and then we'll look at verse 6 in a variety of different translations to, to help us understand really what David, King David of Israel, was saying. The Lord is my shepherd, there is nothing I lack. He lets me lie down in green pastures, he leads me beside quiet waters, he renews my life. He leads me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even when I go through the darkest valley, I fear no danger, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff to comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Only goodness and faithful love will pursue me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord as long as as I live. Verse 6, the NIV puts it this way, Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The New American Standard Version, Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The New Living Translation, Surely your goodness and unfailing love will pursue me all the days of my life, and I will live in the house of the Lord forever. I just read not long ago the message, your beauty and love chase after me every day of my life. I'm back home in the house of God for the rest of my life. And the Holman we just read from, only goodness and faithful love, will pursue me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord as long as I live. This series that we've been looking at from Psalm 23 really is summed up in one sentence that I've given you each week. The Lord is in charge of my life, so I have all that I need. I want you to believe that. I want you to hear it. That's really what David says in verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd. He's in charge. He's my leader. He's my king. And so I have all that I need. There's nothing that I lack, our version says this morning. And today, we're going to look at what we all need, hope, but what we so often lack, which is hope. And where can we find that? David has found security and confidence and rest in the Lord. And even in the midst of being pursued, this is what tradition tells us, that in the midst of his being pursued by his son, Absalom, who was trying to take over the throne, David writes these words. And if that's true, if, if truly he was in the midst of this, isn't that amazing? I mean, it's amazing to begin with, as somebody would write these words, that regardless of what life throws at me, the Lord is my shepherd, the Lord is in charge of my life, I have all that I want, or all that I need, rather. But in, in the midst of being pursued, of, in the midst of his family difficulties, his kingdom falling apart, all he says here is, I just want to be in the presence of my shepherd. His focus is only on the Lord, not on his circumstances. I believe that's the key to his hope. Because he never seems to lose hope. And just so you know, biblical hope, that word isn't just sort of hoping and wishing things will turn out. This is not a wish list. The Scripture gives us hope and points us to hope that is a confident assurance. A confident assurance that God truly is in charge and that we have all that we need as a result of that. And that's the hope that we enjoy as believers. We don't hope as in making a wish. We have hope because of the shepherd who loves us. And so after following his shepherd through the green pastures and the quiet waters and the right paths for him, after after going walking with the shepherd through the darkest valley, he says in verse 4, after having the shepherd prepare for him a victory meal in the middle of the battlefield, David now sums it all up in verse 6, and he says, "...only goodness and faithful love will pursue me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord as long as I live." He's saying some things here about his shepherd that give him hope. This is a hopeful verse. He's pointing toward the future. He's looking for the rest of his life, and he says, I've got hope because of my shepherd. First of all, he's saying here, only goodness and faithful love will pursue me all the days of my life. He's saying, first of all, that my shepherd is good. I have hope because my shepherd is good. He says, only goodness. Surely, some versions say, this is what I'm confident of. I know that nothing but these things are what's going to pursue me. He uses the word goodness. This is just one of the attributes of God. It's just part of His nature, that He is good. The word simply means, this is a good thing. It's to my benefit or my welfare. The song, It is well with my soul... Because it is good. That's where this term comes from. It's pleasant. It's agreeable. It's good for me. David is using a word that sums all of that up. In fact, he uses a word that was used in Genesis when God saw that his creation was good. It means it's exactly the way that he wants it to be. The same word is used. It's right. It's best. It's not negative. It's not harmful. It's wise and helpful. That's what he's talking about. This attribute of goodness sums all of that up. The great thing about goodness is that it's in God's nature. Just like water has to be wet, God has to be good. It's in His nature. He cannot change. Evidence in the Scripture includes His righteousness. He's good and righteous. He's good so He loves. He's good so He has compassion. He's good so He gives us grace. He's good so He is generous toward us. The great news about God's goodness is not only He is good, but He does good. We just trace back Psalm 23. He's good so He leads me to where rest is found. He's good so He gives me security. He's good so I have hope. All of those things He does, He he helps me because He is good. My shepherd is good, He says. I don't know what your perception of God is, but the perception of God from the Scripture is that God is good. He is good. He is your shepherd. He is good. Secondly, David is talking about his shepherd and he says, only goodness and faithful love will pursue me. He says, my shepherd is not only good, but my shepherd is faithful. My shepherd is good and faithful. He uses a word, a little Hebrew word known as hesed. Uh, this, is, this is a word that's found a lot in the Scripture. It, it's the word faithful, faithful love, loving kindness. If you've read any of the Psalms, you, you know this is a big, big part of the Psalms. Uh, give thanks to the Lord for His loving kindness endures forever. His faithfulness endures forever. Th- this is what he's talking about. It's a word really that as you unpack it, there's more stuff that just keeps coming out of the box. This is a really loaded word. It means kindness and generosity and loyalty and steadfastness, and mercy, all these things wrapped up into this one word. And what's amazing about this loving kindness, this faithful love of the Lord, is that when we see it applied to the Lord in Scripture, it's always shown, never just felt, or spoken about. You ever been there where you you say you you, you care about somebody and you do nothing? No, you say you love somebody, but you don't do anything about it, or you you think somebody, they they say, well, they they say they care about me, but they haven't shown it at all. Well, maybe they think that or maybe they feel that. In the Scripture, we see that God's loving kindness is never stunted with just talking about it or feeling it. It's always in action. I looked up this word hesed in, in the Scripture. This idea of loving kindness, and there are dozens of references to it. I, I, I'm going to read to you just some of the some of the instances. I'm not going to read the scriptures, but the examples of God's faithful love. Here's what the Bible tells us that is wrapped up into God's faithful love for us. And again, this is from the whole of Scripture. Here's some examples: God forgives our sins, an example of His faithful love. He leads us. He keeps His promises even when we fail. He maintains His presence with us even when we walk away from Him. He has compassion on us. He welcomes us into His arms. He delivers us from our enemies and out of despair. He sees us and knows us and hears us. He protects us. He holds us up when we slip. He is slow to anger. He has a deep and enduring commitment to us because we are in need. That's what is wrapped up when David says, Faithful love. That's what he's saying. That's a lot. A lot that goes into that. That's like drinking from a fire hose this morning. Wow, there's a whole lot that's wrapped up. Part of that you might not even remember, but I want you to hold on to the fact that God is faithful. Our shepherd is good. Our shepherd is faithful. David says, this goodness, this faithful love, I know that I always have the gentle, kind, and sure care of the shepherd. He knows that when he walks with the Lord, that's what he gets. He's in the shepherd's constant care. My shepherd is good and faithful, he says. And he also says that my shepherd is for me. I like this last little part that he puts in the beginning of verse 6. He says, only goodness, this character of God, this faithful love, this enduring commitment, always shown, he said, only goodness and faithful love will pursue me. Now, as best I could tell this week in study, this word pursue... Is really the the best way to render wh- what David's trying to to say. Follow is 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 good, but it's not really as doesn't have as much teeth to it. it. It can mean to accompany, as if I'm kind of walking alongside these things. But but the word itself is used elsewhere to talk about harassment and persecution. Never leaving somebody alone. You have anybody who's annoying in your life? Don't don't don't. Just, up to they're sitting, don't, they're next, they're next to you. Be careful. Don't do it, Bill. Or maybe I should say Juanita. Don't do it. <laughs> yeah, anybody who, who annoys you, they just, boy, they won't leave you alone. You know, they're just, just messing with you all the time. You know, Miles and I down here, kind of messing with each other, just annoying each other a little bit. Or maybe maybe you've had something you just something nagging in your life. Oh, I just wish that would go away. Just leave me alone. It's always there. Never seems to to leave me alone. It's chasing you, pursuing you. You try to get away from it, and you look around. There it is, it's like your shadow. You can't can't get away from it. David is saying that that these these attributes of God, this goodness of God, this faithfulness of God. Those just prove, because they chase me, that he is for me. My shepherd is good, he is faithful, he is for me. He's always there, he's always nipping at my heels. He uses terminology that we would normally associate with something negative, harassment and persecution. And what he's saying is that God harasses me with goodness and faithful love. Now that's good kind of harassment, I'll take that. God, if you don't mind... Would you please harass me with everything that's good about you? Don't ever leave me alone. God, just smack me around, tackle me with it, and and hold me on the ground and make sure that I experience your goodness and faithful love. God, when I get up and I start to walk away, trip me one more time and get me with your goodness and faithful love. That's what David is saying. These things are what chase me down in order to overcome me. Football season is about to start. I was, I was listening to a conversation earlier talking about professional football and some college football, and, and inevitably you will see several plays this year where a running back or a wide receiver has the ball and they are running a long distance down the field trying to score a touchdown, and out of nowhere seemingly somebody from the defense will chase them down and tackle them, just nipping at their heels. And you can see them either look back or look up at the video board to see who's behind them, and they're going to run as fast as they can. David says, just like a defender who's trying to tackle that guy before he gets to the goal line, that's what God is doing in my life. He's chasing after me. He's trying to overcome me. He's trying to overwhelm me with his goodness and faithful love. He goes with me everywhere. David looks around this situation, and he realizes that his kingdom is falling apart. He realizes that his own sin with Bathsheba back in Second Samuel caused really all the problems. He realizes that his own son, Absalom, wants him dead, wants to take over the throne. And he looks around and he says, God's the only good thing that's going on in my life. I, I talked with a friend of mine probably 10 or 12 years ago now. And he was in his early 40s and his wife died. She died of cancer. They were wonderful, godly people. People that I had known my whole life at my home church. And it really broke my heart. Maybe you've dealt with folks like that, that you just think, why? And I remember talking to him. His name was Dave. And I said, there's a few weeks after. And I said, Dave, you know, how are you doing? I mean, how are you, how you getting through this? I mean, life is falling apart. And he looked at me and he said, man, I'll be honest with you. He said, God is the only good thing going on. He said, I'm just trying to be as close to Him as I possibly can. He's the only good thing in my life. Everything else is falling apart. He said, God's the, the only good thing going on. David looks at his situation, and this morning I challenge you, look at your situation and understand that God is for you. He is the only good thing going on. Jesus Himself would say when questioned about it, that only God is truly good. He's for me. He's always sending His goodness and His faithfulness with me and after me. David says, I will be overcome by God's goodness and faithful love rather than life's difficulties. You realize there are a couple things chasing you. You've got one that's pursuing you to overcome you and truly persecute you and harass you in a negative way, and that is life's difficulties. And then you've got God's goodness and faithful love. They're they're constantly nipping at your heels. This morning, I hope that you'll realize that God is for you. David says here, I have hope. True, confident assurance that the Lord is in charge of my life, so I have all that I need. I have hope because my shepherd is good, he is faithful, and he is for me. I'll tell you this, you don't have to wish for that. You don't even have to pray for that. You don't have to pray, Lord, please be good, please be faithful, please be for me. You don't have to pray for those things. You don't have to wish for those things because they simply are. Because that's who God is. That's who your shepherd is. He said earlier that "That you lead me in paths of righteousness for for His name's sake. God is who He is and He's going to do the things He does because that's who He is and what He does. (laughs) There's no way around it. It's in his nature to be good and faithful and for us. He is good. He is faithful. He is for us all the time, every time. And it's not contingent upon who I am and what I do or don't do. As I told you, David messed everything up. The reason that his son Absalom is coming after him is because David sinned, and now his kingdom is falling apart because of the ripple effect of his sin. And yet he looks around and says, God's still coming after me. God still won't leave me. God still won't forsake me. God hasn't, and God won't change, regardless of what you do or what you've done. God still loves you. He is still faithful. He is still good. He is still for you. Maybe this morning it's time to believe it. With the hope that we see here in the Scripture comes a wonderful privilege, but also some responsibility. The responsibility and the challenge this morning is for us each to live each day close to the shepherd. Live each day close to the shepherd. Look what David says the end of verse 6. He says, Only goodness and faithful love will pursue me all the days of my life. There's my hope. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord as long as I live. Live each day close to the shepherd as if you are in his house. David says, I will dwell. That word means to return, to go back. Every day of my life, he says, I'm going back to the house of the Lord. That's where I want to be as long as I live. So no matter what, after the darkest valley, after the green pastures, I'm getting back into the house of the Lord. And when he says house of the Lord, we, we might think a variety of things about that. But he's talking about the tabernacle, later on the temple. He's talking about the place where Israel met with God collectively and individually. They would go there to meet with God. God would meet with with sinful people there in what was called the house of the Lord. And it was there at their place of worship that they would renew their allegiance to God. That God would meet with them and reveal to Him what what He wanted them to do. It was there that as all the tribes, the twelve tribes came together, that they would resolve their differences... It was there that they made offerings of various kinds, some to deal with sin, some out of thanksgiving, some out of celebration, others just to show complete dependence and surrender to the Lord. Being in the house of the Lord for the Israelites meant that they, that they would be holy, that they would worship that they would be obedient, they would pray, that they would get revelation and word from God, that their commitment would be fresh and new, that they'd give thanksgiving, that they'd celebrate, that they'd confess, that they'd be cleansed. Living in the presence of the Lord, going to the house of the Lord, meant all of those things for them. And our commitment to the Lord must involve the same things. We don't go to a tabernacle now. We don't go to a temple. And I'll be honest with you, We are not in the house of God. We now, as we know from the Scripture, we are the house of God. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And yes, we meet in this place, but you understand it's different from the Old Testament. We don't live in Old Testament times. We live in New Testament, Holy Spirit times, and He has taken up residence in us. And so now we, as the house of God, have this responsibility not to go to the tabernacle to make sacrifices, but to apply the principles that Israel did when they worshiped the Lord at the tabernacle. That's our responsibility, to live each day in the presence of the Lord. And so so when we... When we each day realize that we truly are the tabernacle, the temple, the, the, the house of God, then we renew our commitment to Him. When, when, when we meet together, we seek collectively and individually God's will for our church and for our lives. We come to Him to be made holy, to worship, to be cleansed, to confess our sins. Each day, that's what we must be doing as we live each day close to the shepherd. He says, as long as I live. I will dwell in the house of the Lord as long as I live. Any true Israelite who was truly worshiping the Lord would have said there's nothing they would rather do than spend each day in the presence of God. Psalm chapter 84 puts it this way. The psalmist writes, better is one day in your courts than a thousand days elsewhere. I'd rather be a servant in the house of God than to reign supreme somewhere else, the psalmist said. Now, the Scripture is rendered in several different translations forever, but that's that's an inaccurate word to use. David uses a word that just says for length of days. As long as I live. Just for the rest of my life, I want to live in the presence of God. He's talking about throughout his entire life when it's difficult, I just want to be in God's presence. Amazingly, David just says when life is pressing in, I just want to be closer to God. You know, circumstances can send you one of two ways, obviously. It can send you away from the Lord or it can send you to Him. He says, in the midst of these difficult, trying, troubling circumstances, I just want to be closer to God. When life is good, he just wants to be close to the Lord, just praising the shepherd. And he knows that for the rest of his life, even when life is close to being over, he'll still be in the presence of the Lord. I took a survey recently from Harvard University, as a matter of fact. They selected randomly pastors and spiritual leaders throughout the country and sent this survey. I have no idea why or how I was selected, but I thought this is pretty interesting. It was about death and dying and pastoral ministry in the the last days of life. And one of the questions that struck me when I began to study this sermon was about what gives death its dignity. And one of the things that they said, is the ability to choose when you die, does that give death back its dignity? And was talking about uh, maybe assisted suicide or some kind of euthanasia of some kind, and, and the survey is just wanting to know, from your perspective as a spiritual leader, does that give death back its dignity? And I, and I, I, emphatically on the survey said, no, it does not. Death has dignity. When David says, as long as I live, I'll just be in the presence of God. Death has dignity so long as you know the shepherd because you're ushered into His immediate presence upon leaving this life, you go straight into the next. That's what gives death its dignity because God is there. Death doesn't have dignity because we get to choose this or that or because we die with grace or anything like that. Death has dignity only because God is there. That's what gives it its dignity. It's amazing. David will always have hope, he says. As long as I live, I'm just going to dwell in the presence of God. And the great thing is, he's not making that up. He's not manufacturing it. He's not just saying, well, if I set better goals, then I'll have some hope in this life. Now, there's something great about what we now know that David didn't know completely. You know, when I say the word there is rendered sometimes forever, that's not exactly accurate because David didn't have the full revelation of God and Jesus Christ had not come yet and talked all about eternal life and life in heaven. They really didn't know all of that. Some of what they did was just speculating. Not totally sure. God continued to reveal Himself. You realize that Psalm 23 is not where the Bible ends. There's more to what God had to teach us. And so what we know through reading the Old Testament is that David knew that he had hope in this life until it was over. And we gain that certainly from reading Psalm 23 in the way that David intended for us to understand it. But you know, we also have the New Testament. We get to read Psalm 23 in such a way that the Israelites couldn't read it at that time because we have now the full revelation of God in Scripture that tells us, yes, we have hope in this life. But Psalm 23 is just a preview of what's to come. Psalm 23, read in light of the New Testament, just simply says, Our shepherd is good, he is faithful, and he is for me, and he always will be, both in this life and the next. And so when we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be, because our shepherd will be there, and we'll experience the fullness of his goodness and faithfulness, and the fact that he's for us. Psalm 23 is just a preview of the life that is to come. We have hope now, and we have hope forever I'll be honest with you this sermon as I get to to the point of closing this sermon is really is really not for some people if you're a person this morning who figures you've got it all together and you've got it all figured out this is not a sermon for you it's going to go in one ear and out the other that's okay this sermon is for people who truly are desperate. Because in truth, you only make changes when you're desperate. The rest of the time, we just sort of coast through life and we figure we've got it together and figured out. You only make changes really when you're desperate. And so this morning, I, if you're desperate, My question, I guess, is would you rather me tell you how to set better goals or would you rather have me introduce you to the king of the universe who created you, loves you, died for you, and rose again so you can have eternal life? Which one? Because if all you want are better goals, you don't need the Lord for that. If today all you want is a pep talk, give me some hope, buddy. You don't need me for that. You don't need the scripture for that. Psalm 23 was just a preview of the one who came, the good shepherd, who lived a perfect life that we could never live, who died a sacrificial death that we deserve, and who was raised again by God the Father in order to promise us eternal life. All who will believe in him receive that. Forgiveness of sin. We we, we get power over the penalty and, and over the power of sin in our lives. Jesus himself, the good shepherd, good, faithful, and for you. Jesus said that he... Is he, he is the one, we look at rest, who gives us rest, he says. He's the bread of life. He gives us living water. What Jesus did, he came and he conquered death. He gives us security in our darkest valleys. What he did, he gives us victory over every enemy we face. And what he will do, the hope that we have, is he will one day return, and we then will be with him forever. The Lord is in charge of my life. So I have all that I need The question for the whole series and certainly for this message. Who's in charge? How desperate are you this morning? How hopeless are you? How much rest and security and confidence and hope do you really have? Be honest with yourself and be honest with God. If you just need some new goals, i got nothing for you. But if you say, you know what, I'm willing to admit to the Lord that I am desperate, that I am hopeless, that I have no rest, I have no security, I have no confidence in life apart from Him, then this morning I can offer you Jesus Christ. And He, and He alone, the Good Shepherd, can give you rest, can give you confidence, can give you security, and can give you hope as you receive His free gift of salvation by faith in Him. Do you have that? Do you have rest and security and hope? And if not, are you willing this morning to admit your need for Jesus. And maybe just this fresh and new commitment, you just say, Lord, again, would you be in charge of my life? There's no hope apart from Him. There's no rest, there's no security, there's no confidence apart from Him. David gives us that in the Psalms. Jesus fulfills it all in the New Testament. My prayer, my encouragement, my challenge is for those who are desperate this morning, to fall on your face before Jesus Christ and surrender it all to Him. We'll sing in just a moment a song that Dan and I were talking about before the service. And I I told him, I said, you know, this has just been on my heart today when I got up this morning, this particular song. Because I I think that as we look at the hopelessness that our world has to offer us, then we truly do as the title of the song says, we need to turn our eyes upon Jesus. That's the song that we'll close with this morning, different from the one that's in your bulletin. But to turn your eyes upon Jesus, are you desperate? Are you willing to do that? This morning, you can. This morning, He's available to you. He loves you. He'll never leave you. If you'd like prayer, I'll be standing down here. If you want to talk about what a commitment to the Lord means, by all means, please come and see me. Be happy to help you any way I can. Let's pray together. God, help us to turn our eyes upon Jesus this morning to look for you, to look to you for the hope that we need. God, I pray for those who are desperate, who don't want to admit it, but who feel it and who know it. Lord, today, and I pray that you would that you'd help us to fall on our knees before you cry out to you to surrender it all, to turn our eyes upon Jesus, to look fully in your wonderful face. Lord, help us this morning. We pray in Jesus' name.